This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com, C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Today's quote is from Talk to Me, a book by Anna DeVere Smith from the year 2000 uh, about the combination of theater and politics in her mind, what you can learn from one about the other and vice versa. There's so many great nuggets, but here's a few tiny things that she says. One is, speaking calls for risk. Speaking calls for a sense of what one has to lose, not just what one has to gain. Speaking calls for heart. And the other one on that same page is, when there is vulnerability, there's a greater possibility that something will actually happen. Welcome to Permission to Speak, the podcast about how we talk and how we get ourselves heard. With me, Samara Bay. Today's guest is Sarah Hurwitz. I I cannot with this woman's brilliance. She was Hillary Clinton's speechwriter in 2008. She wrote Hillary's concession when she lost the primary to Barack Obama and uh, famously said, quote, Although we weren't able to shatter that highest, hardest glass ceiling this time, thanks to you, it's got about 18 million cracks in it, which makes me feel a lot of things in hindsight. Um, And then at the time, Sarah got scooped up right away to work with the Obamas, first with Barack and then with Michelle, for all eight years of their time in the White House, which she talks about in our interview. I wanted to have her on because, I mean... You know, obviously, she is a genius at understanding the anatomy of speech writing, which is so satisfying. She's so clear on how to create moments and also how to sustain that for beginning, middle and end. And it's so fun to think of going back now to some of Michelle Obama's, you know, greatest speeches and sort of seeing how that template played out. Our conversation is super fun and also just 
so deliciously full of useful tips. She shared with me such wisdom on literally how to structure a speech, on how to think about metaphors and use of our personal stories and our kind of inner fire and and inspiration, and also on how to deliver speeches, or as I like to say, how to be a person in front of other people. And then, you know, there's also this, uh, this other side of her because since she left the White House in 2016, she went on to write a book called Here All Along, which is sort of surprisingly about rediscovering Judaism as an adult. And I wanted to tease out what the connection is between her speech writing and her Judaism and her interest in sharing the values and the wisdom that she discovered there as an adult. And uh, basically what I'm trying to say is um, I made her tell us the meaning of life and I can't wait for you to hear it. Truly, this was such a delightful conversation. This is Sarah. Sarah, how are you? Hi. I'm nice doing well. You. Hi. Nice to see you too. <laughs> um, I'm so glad we get to do this. I know last time we did the non-Zoom version, so now we're like stepping it up. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to start. So I'm so glad to have you here. First of all, I just was saying that. Um, okay, so I want to say you're a speechwriter and you are a Jewish scholar. I don't know if I, I wouldn't call myself a Jewish I know, scholar. I know, I know, what <laughs> I know. More like a my, Jewish student. <laughs> what I have in my notes is amateur Jewish scholar, but I was like, I'm going to let you do the do the qualifying because I know I knew you were going to. Um, but I also think that those two things are relevant, and so we're we're definitely going to talk about both. But because, of course, this is permission to speak, we're going to talk about the speaking side of it um, up top. I. I I have heard you say multiple times that the process of speech writing is dictation, you type it up, uh, you work that into a draft, you share it with 40 or 50 people, there is a, <laughs> you know, a, a iterative process in there. And I want to talk about the parts that are missing from that description. Okay. So first of all, starting with dictation, obviously there's something that happens before that. And part of it is on your end in terms of the... I imagine the sort of trust and relationship and intimacy that you have to build with somebody when you're helping them figure out their own voice. And part of it is for them figuring out what the point is of, of whatever it is that you guys are working on. Yes. So I think that that is so true. And when you say dictation, like I think you're referring to when I would meet with Mrs. Obama and she would give me a download, but she would say like, here is what I want to say. And she would just basically articulate like complete paragraphs, sometimes complete pages of what you wanted to say. And I would type verbatim on my laptop to really try to get it down because it was so good. And you're right. There is something that happens before that, which is the establishment of a relationship with this person, right? There's an establishment of a real rapport with them. And I think, you know, that was something that I, I first had with her in 2008 when I helped her with her Democratic National Convention speech. You know, this was a moment where you know, it's hard to remember now because she's this like beloved, celebrated international icon. But back in 2008, you know, she was getting this like all of this ugly sexism and racism, all this you're an angry black woman stuff, which was just so disgusting. It was just disgusting. It was horrifying and it was disgusting and it was untrue. And, you know, I was working with her on her convention speech in that context, which is a really, you know, intense kind of context. And, 
I just remember she was so clear then. She was like, you know what? Here's who I am. Here's what I'm passionate about. Here's what I care about. You know, I am I am a mother. Here's why this is the heart of my life. I am, you know, a, a career professional. Here is my my passions for public service. And you know, she just was so clear with herself. And I was just, you know, it, with her in that moment as she was articulating who she is and what she wanted to say. And I think that moment built a lot of trust and connection. So you're right, there is that trust and connection so that by the time we sit down, she knows that I'm someone who knows her, respects her, can kind of hear what she's saying to me in the context of who she is, and then can kind of turn around a draft based on that. How much, I wonder now that you say that, how much of that is, um, I think all of us probably have some version of an experience working with somebody who's uh, either, you know, a superior to us or just an intimidating person. And we're we're wondering how much we sort of nod along and create that space for them versus really interject ideas and make it clear that we're we're an active participant do you remember in those early days in 08 what that kind of balance felt like? You in those early days, I was really there to listen. You know, because I, I, my role, I really felt like was I, I want to know this woman as as much as possible. I want her to just have the full space for her to just articulate who she is. And I, I didn't come in with any idea I was trying to impose on her, right? This, this was a speech, this right. Democratic convention speech. It was going to be you know, 17 minutes of her in front of the American people, unmediated by any of this ugly press that was just so nasty and racist and sexist. It was just a time for her to be herself before the American people. So my role was really just to sit and listen to her and say, like, who, who are you? Tell me about yourself, which she did. You know, we met in her living room in Chicago for like 90 minutes to talk about the speech. And it was just, you know, I was just so blown away by her you know, by her authenticity, by her intelligence, by her passion, by just like her clarity on who she is. You know, I think that that loyalty to her, her own truth, that relentless authenticity, it just defined everything she did in her life. And so, it, you know, there was just a real clarity around like, yeah, this is who I am. These are my values. Yeah. It makes me think also of um, one of my guests a month or two ago had this great comment when I was asking her how she pitches. She's a, she's a TV director. And, and, you know, how she thinks about who her audience is and what they need. And she said, there's this first step where you figure out what you care about. And she said, you have to check, are you dancing for you or for them? Ah, yes. This is, you know, the most, the single most important piece of advice I give about speech writing and speech giving is just say something true. Like your first question should not be what will make me sound smart or powerful or funny or what does the audience want to hear? Your first question needs to be what is the deepest, most important and most helpful truth that I can tell at this particular moment? And you've got to get really still with that. And you've got to get very clear on that. Once you know the answer to that question, okay, then you got to figure out, okay, what can people hear? How can I tell this truth? Can I tell this truth? Maybe not. Right, that's okay. You can figure that out. But your first question, you've got to get very clear with like, what is true here? Well, and it seems like that's something that um, I'm going to call her Mrs. Obama while I'm with you. Although, of course, in my mind, she's Michelle because I listened to her whole audiobook over like multiple weeks that we went on like a road trip together. <laughs> and you know, I love that. I love it. I actually love it when like I call her Mrs. Obama because like she was my boss. You know, I was her employee. But I love it. I love it when people when Americans want to call her Michelle, it's because they love her and they feel like she is their girlfriend, their sister, right? She's cultivated this, you know, this warmth and this authenticity with people where they're like, of course, I'm going to call her Michelle. She's like my friend. And I think that's beautiful. I love it. I love it. Well, okay. So this ties into my actual question, which is that, you know, and also you've worked with a number of other 
extremely high profile people. And whether whether we're talking about them or other people or yourself or for those of us listening, you know, we don't always have that that sense of clarity of what exactly we want to be saying. And so this this process that you're talking about of getting still and figuring it out, do you have any wisdom around how to do that if you're not sort of Michelle and walking around being like, you know, I know I know my truth at every moment? Yeah, you know, I really, I try to think about like, what if I were giving this speech to no one? Like, what would be like my like Jerry Maguire moment? Like, if I were just going to like <laughs> get up and like, you know, give that rip-roaring speech that I actually, like the thing that I just most truly think, what would I say? I think that's how I kind of get clear with like what is really true here. You know, just to kind of get to that, that core beating heart idea. That's how I do it. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And also, you know, we're in this such a weird moment right now where we're literally not public right. speaking. Um, right. That it's sort of a, it's it's interesting to sort of think about how to use this time in that way. Um, I don't want to get on the like be super productive bandwagon because obviously that's deeply problematic. But yes. if there are moments of stillness that we can find to think about what really matters to us in this moment. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So the, the next part that is missing or that's not fully um, revealed yet in, in your step-by-step process on how you have done speech writing is this idea of working it into a draft. So yes. I want to talk about some of the if you will, nerdier <laughs> aspects of speech writing, tools, yes. tools of speech, oratory style, literary devices. I mean, I want to know how you think about this stuff. I can ask more specific questions to, than that, but first, do, how do you, what do you do yeah. with like, with a, even a beautiful like blah onto the page? Then yes. What? So, okay. The number one thing with speech writing is structure. Structure is destiny. What do I mean by structure? Structure is the order in which the paragraphs of the speech come. They have to be in the right order, right? You have to have a logical flow that has a good pace and rhythm and that's it, that's sort of like telling, that has like a good narrative arc. If you don't, like if you're writing something and it's just boring or feels like repetitive or just feels kind of sloppy or floppy, it's probably because it's in the wrong order. And when you, I will often print it out when I feel like it's not working, I'll print it out and I'll look at it. And I'll be like, oh, this paragraph I have at the end, that's actually my first paragraph. And I'm saying the same thing on pages two and four and six. I can delete two of those three things. Once you start doing that, you start to realize like, oh, now I can eliminate all this awkward transition language that I have when you're trying to make paragraphs be next to each other that really shouldn't be next to each other. So for me, outlining is key. I always have an outline. Like, I always have a sense of like, okay, I've just gotten this, you know, big dump of like amazing language from Mrs. Obama. Now, what's the outline of this going to be? And just to get really nitty gritty, I often start speeches with gratitude, right? Like, thank you so much. It is such a pleasure to be here. Thank you to this person and that person. And then it'll be like, and most of all, like, thanks to all of you. And I'll like want to say something about the audience. Like, you know, you're this group of people who are doing whatever it is that they're doing, right? Like, if just speaking to a bunch of nurses, she'll be like, you guys are extraordinary. Here's what you're doing every day. And it's really important to show in those moments. Like the whole show, don't tell. Everyone's like, no, no, I get it. <laughs> no one does it. Oh my God, people no. just tell. You're amazing. You're so powerful. You're so compassionate. You're so hardworking. Blah, blah, blah. No one cares. What's better is like, you know what? Right now in this pandemic, you are the one sitting by the bedside of people gasping to breathe, holding their hands, holding up an iPad so that they can speak to their loved ones. Oh, 
there's an image. You are the one commuting an hour a day, risking your own life, taking the train in, you know, like tending to people, taking a shower, coming home an hour later, worrying about me. Like, you got to really make it so that you can see it. So I really like to start off by like celebrating the audience's story and then connecting it to like, okay, so why are we here today? Like, why am I here today? You know, like all, everything that you were doing, what I've just been talking about, that's why I'm here today, right? I'm here today because I care about the work you're doing and here's how I want to support. You know, you can kind of like get into it that way by telling the story of the audience. That's like one powerful way. I think, especially if you are a public servant, that's a pretty good way to to get in there because you're telling the story of your bosses, basically, the people you're serving. So that's like a, a powerful way to get in there, you know, to start it out. We could also say that no matter what industry we're in, whether we're, you know, officially public servants or not, if we're up there on that stage, it's probably because we have a connection with our audience and because we're thankful yes. for something and then because we have something to give. And so you just gave a brilliant structure for like, you know, hitting each of those things. Exactly. And then once you've told their story, you can tie it to your own story, right? It's like, you know, I'm here because like, I, you know, what is your own connection to nurses? Was, you know, like, did a nurse take care of someone in your family? Are you someone who, you know, you are a nurse? You, like, whatever it is, it's like, you know, why does this matter for you, right? Connect their story to your story and then kind of go from there. It also makes me think that um, I've really been aware since I've been doing this podcast of how, and and really prior, but it's been really obvious um, in a new way, how hard it is for women to tell their stories as soon as there's yes. a microphone there. Yes, yes. It is. To actually structure it in and say, now's the part where I have to say, okay, why is this relevant for me? And really admit to yourself or give yourself permission that you are up there for a reason, which means you have a story to tell. Exactly. And you know what? And that's, I think that that moment is so hard because sometimes you think, I don't know any nurses. I'm not a nurse. What is my tie? Oh my gosh. And you start to panic and it's like, okay, stop. What's true? Right? It's Mm -hmm. like, okay. It doesn't, maybe you don't have some magical tie to the nurses. Maybe you're not a nurse. It's like, but like, what is true? And you can actually say, you know, I'm not a nurse. No one in my family isn't a nurse. I've actually never been taken care of by a nurse, but like, but what, what, what is it like for you? Like, do you admire nurses because of the incredible work they do? Did you go to college with someone who became a, a nurse? And when you talk to that person, you're just moved by their story. You know, like just say something true. You get so much credit when you just say something true. You do. Okay. So. And. And. And back to the technical stuff. Yes. Now, structure is on the larger scale, right? And then line by line, I actually, for a completely different reason, was looking at Mrs. Obama's 08 DNC speech Mm. uh, recently. And and she has this amazing moment, and I think it ties into what you were talking about up top. I feel ridiculous even considering reading it out loud, but I'm going to just so we all have reference (laughs) on what I'm talking about. But she said, all of us are driven by the simple belief that the world as it is just won't do, that we have an obligation to fight for the world as it should be. And that is the thread that connects our hearts. That is the thread that runs through my journey and Barack's journey and so many other improbable journeys that have brought us here tonight, where the current of history meets this new tide of hope. And you see, that is why I love this country, which was, you know, an inference for anybody who knew that she was going through this phase where people were accusing her of not without actually saying it. Right, exactly. So I read that because I want to talk specifically about metaphor here, right? There's this thread yeah. metaphor. How, I want to just talk a little bit of that, that technical side of it because, you know, especially those of us who are English majors, like we, we notice this kind of thing anyway. We wonder, I wonder how much that's just like 
somebody's oratory style versus somebody else's, or if it's something that we should all be thinking about? Like, how do we make lists happen out loud? How do we make momentum build? Yeah. So this is another tip that I often give. Talk like a human being, and even more important, talk like yourself. People, when they get up to give a speech, they tend to lose their minds. You know, like the most charismatic, dynamic, interesting business person, you know, maybe a sales manager, uh, you know, just a business person, they'll get up to give a speech and they'll be like, we need to leverage our verticals to catalyze transformational results for, it's like, I, you don't talk like that normally. You do not turn to your spouse and be like, honey, we've got to leverage our platform <laughs> to catalyze some, tra-. it's like, you don't do that, right? Politicians get up and they're like, we need to put hardworking American middle-class family values first You've never turned to your neighbor and been like, Bob, I'm thinking we just got to put hardworking American middle-class family values for like, (laughs) that's not how you would normally talk, right? And so, you know, jargon, slogans, sound bites, just meh, not so into any of that. Now, metaphor, poetry, stuff like that. Yeah, I think you can do that, but it has to feel comfortable for you. Right? If it feels like you are giving a speech where I am now doing the metaphor, it's like, uh, you know, that can be a little, it's like you can tell when someone is kind of like giving a speech. So I do think you can use metaphor, but it should feel natural coming out of your mouth. Right. So like that idea of like, you know, the thread that connects our hearts, the right. idea of this new tide of hope and this history, like, you know, she was talking to tens of thousands of screaming people in a stadium. That's appropriate. That's the right size language for that size audience and venue and importance of speech. Probably not the right size for you making a presentation to 10 of your colleagues on Zoom. Right? Probably not. Right? Venue and size of the audience and sort of importance and and elevation of the event really determines how lofty you can be, how many metaphors you want to use. You know, you've got to be a little bit more thoughtful. And this was something I want to say, like when we first started in the Obama administration, we actually got some real criticism where people were saying, you know, President Obama was so amazing on the campaign. He was inspiring and awesome. And now he's kind of a boring speaker in the White House. And it's like, guys, he was giving campaign speeches to stadiums of 30,000 screaming, weeping people. And now he's giving a speech to 200 people in the East Room of the White House about how the economy is collapsing. If he gave a big, like, hope and change, da, 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 in the East Room of the White House to 200 people, he would look insane, right? Like, the venue is different. And frankly, his role is different. Right now, he's commander in chief. He is, he's now articulating the policy of the U.S. to get out of a crisis. It's a different tone. It's a different venue. It's a different role. I really love your impression. <laughs> <laughs> That's like seared on my mind now. Um, uh, okay, so final question specifically about speech writing, although I'm, we're probably going to circle back for some more advice at the end. Yeah, um, of course. But, uh, you know, you've said you were bad at it when you started. Yeah, And then you found, when you went to law school, you you ended up joining up with somebody who had more experience than you. What was that process of learning and getting better? So the reason why I was bad at it is because I didn't really understand that there is a very big difference to writing that is meant to be read and writing that is meant to be spoken out loud. They are two different forms of writing. If you try to read out loud writing that is meant to be read with the eyes, it's going to sound very formal and kind of clunky, you know? doesn't work. Yeah. I'm just going to stop right there. I just said, you know, period, doesn't work, period. And you did not respond by saying, I'm sorry, Sarah, those were two sentence fragments. The grammar was off there. The punctuation was wrong. You didn't. Sounded fine. 
Yeah. I like to call it, I call it like, like when you're reading, it's the sentence is the, is the formal unit. And when you're speaking, the thought is. Exactly. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, you know, spoken language, it doesn't conform to the rules of grammar or punctuation. Written language does. Written language is much more formal. And so when, if you looked at one of my speeches written out on a page, you'd have an impulse to kind of correct it. You have an impulse to fix the sentence fragments and to punctuate it. It just doesn't, it feels awkward. But when you read it, it feels natural. So I think I had to really make that transition to figuring out how to take language meant to be spoken and be comfortable putting that on the, a page in a, in a, with a keyboard, right? I, I had to kind of make that transition between those two types of writing. That was really my biggest problem that I, I learned to solve. And the structure, I really learned from my friend, and this was a guy named Josh Gottheimer, who is now a congressman. He was my classmate in law school, and he'd previously been a speechwriter for President Clinton. And so we just started freelancing together, and he really taught me about how you structure the speech to make it like logical, one thought flow after the other, and again, how you write it in a way that's meant to be spoken. And so those were the key things that I had to learn. And then ironically, you go back to the writing side for book writing. (laughs) Right, exactly. Is that that is which, by the way, man, that was a struggle, right? To have to like be be confined by the rules of grammar and punctuation. It's like very frustrating. I'm like, wait, I can't start every sentence with because. I can't start every sentence with and. I'm like, they kind of all build on each other. Why can't I just start every sentence in this book with and? I don't well, know. and in a like, way, you also can because it's your book, and then you have to decide <laughs> like, what is my what is my conversational written style versus my conversational out loud style. Right, right. And, you know, my book is much more conversational and, and engaging than I think the average book because I, I am such a speechwriter. Right? I, I, I think it's a lot of people have said to me, reading your book, I feel like you're talking to me. Like it feels like a, a person is speaking to me. And that's very much my goal with my book. I want it to sound like a human being just talking to you, like a friend. It's just yep, here talking to yep. you. On a um, car trip. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great tasting all natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to symbiotica.com. That's C Y M B I O T I K A. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. 
That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Okay, we're back with Sarah Hurwitz, speechwriter to the stars. So, book. Book. After speechwriting, I mean, it it's not lost on probably anybody that um, it, it seems from the outside that the narrative is like, once you've written for Hillary Clinton and for Barack Obama and for Michelle Obama, then you're like, I guess I'll just, I'll just take a break after that. Like, I'll, I'll go out on a high note. <laughs> yeah, it's like, <laughs> exactly. I'm like, I've done, I've been very lucky. Maybe it's, you know. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely a world where, you know, I imagine where you go and do further speech writing and there are future heroes for whom, you know, a collaboration would be exciting. but. Uh, I mean, it's amusing to me that you're like, I'm actually going to go do my own thing for a little bit. So, uh, <laughs> and then your own thing turned out to be this book on Judaism. Yes. Logical next step from the White House. I think it made total sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I kind of want to tease that out. Yeah. So, so did it make total sense? Because, I mean, the story that I know you've told before is that you sort of happened upon or re-happened upon Judaism in adulthood. Yeah. And I wonder how uh, the the impression I get is that you found clarity in Judaism. I mean, in the in the values and the history, and then and then you looked back and saw that there were threads, uh, threads metaphor. Uh, <laughs> in there were threads of it in the speech work that you'd already been doing. Does that feel right? Can you talk about that? Yes, that does feel right. You know, yeah. I mean, I grew up without much Jewish background, randomly wound up just taking an intro to Judaism class on a whim after a breakup when I was lonely, just figuring like, oh, I know nothing about Judaism. I should learn something, fine. And I really was blown away by it. You know, I think what I came to realize is like the secular world doesn't give a lot of really deep answers to our biggest life questions. Like, I don't think you very often like turn to your colleague at the water cooler or over Zoom and are like, hey, Jane, what do you think about God? Like, what, what, why are we all here? What, what happens after we die? What, is, what does it mean to be a good person? Right? We don't have those conversations. And I think that often, like, the solutions that the secular world offers to our biggest life crises, like, or struggles or transitions, like, I'm having a baby, someone I love died, I'm really, I'm, I'm in some life crisis, like, it offers market solutions, right? It's like, buy a really expensive car seat, spring for a really nice casket, treat yourself to a day at the spa, right? There just isn't, it's like, okay, but that's, in those moments, you don't need another product or service, right? You need wisdom and insight. You need a loving community. You need rituals to guide you through. And, you know, this was what I found that Judaism had to offer. And so I was just really moved by it. I was like, oh, this is something that's kind of been missing in my life. And so, you know, I just started learning and was just so intrigued by it. And, you know, I think the logical next step was I was like, I, I feel like the writing out here on this, it's not what I needed, right? Like it's a lot of like, you know, there are these great like intro how-to kind of nuts and bolts book, which are great if you want to know the how-to of Judaism. Then there are these super sophisticated, esoteric academic books, which like, God help you, you have to like really be motivated to slog through those. I was like, 
where is the book that unearths Judaism's deep and radical and countercultural and wise transformative advice for how to just live your life today for someone like me who doesn't want to slog through some academic book, right? And who isn't looking to have a big how-to, like, oh, I'm going to go to synagogue every week. That's not what I was looking for. I wanted the wisdom about, like, how do I cope with being human right now? So I'm like, I think I want to write this book. And, you know, there is an aspect of it that is like, I felt like I was almost like speech writing for the Jewish insights I learned, right? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, okay, guys, you guys are really complicated and you're kind of, you know, a little esoteric. And I want to like speech write for you a little, just to like translate you for people like me who can be yeah, moved by you. Yeah, so there yeah, was that yeah. aspect of so much of speech writing, it's translating. Mm, yeah. It's weaving things together. It's making them come alive. It's getting to the beating heart of them and conveying them to people in a way that moves them that touches their hearts, that speaks to their souls. And like, that's what I wanted to do. And it was very much the speech writing skill. So in a way, I used the same skill, the same core skill that I learned in the White House, but it was like a little departure because it was away from politics. The first time I wasn't working in politics in, you know, a decade, which was a big transition. Yes. And although everything that you just said about the secular world rings true, it is also, it, I mean, it feels true that you were working on these big ideas when you were speechwriting already. I, w- I was, and I think that's actually a big part of the reason why I switched from, you know, I was the I w- was a speechwriter for the president for the first couple of years, and then I decided that I actually liked writing for Mrs. Obama better. So I switched over to her, and I think part of the reason is that, you know, the president has to deal with crises and policy and all this stuff, all, you know, that is his main role or his or her main role. Whereas the first thank you lady, for that, by the way, yeah. Yes, thank you, thank I you mean, for that. It was, totally. I was saying his because it was Obama, but it, <laughs> it is a his or her or their, like all the, all the pronouns. But, you know, switching over to her, she's not the first responder for policy crisis stuff. She's really talking about things that are like what are families going through. She's talking about values and stories and things like that. And it felt like more where I wanted to go. So I think there was that kind of aspect of of wanting to pursue that. Did that switch from um, from him to her? What was the timing of that in terms of when you had this moment when you rediscovered Judaism? You know, I switched to her before I rediscovered Judaism. It was like way back in like 2011. And then I rediscovered Judaism in like, you know, 2014. So it was before that. But, you know, I think that probably the biggest switch between the White House and the book was writing in my own voice. Right? When you're writing, when you're a speechwriter, you're not writing in your own voice. That is not what you are doing. You are channeling the voice of someone else. You constantly have their voice in your head. Like, oh, here's how she'd say it. Here, I, I, I still have Mrs. Obama's voice in my head. <laughs> Even when I write where she's like, shit, Sarah, you know, that transition's a little sloppy. You're like, okay, you're, you're ready? Like, it's like, Sarah, you know, you're, you're getting a little lost in the weeds here. Like, let's pick it up. You know, <laughs> Does she ever a, say nice things? No, no, no. She says nice things all the time, right? Like, I told she does. <laughs> it's like the critic voice in your head is Mrs. Obama. She, she says, says nice Sarah, things all the time. You could pull together a little better than that. <laughs> I know, no. No, she says lots of nice things. But, you know, when I'm writing and I'm trying to, like, edit myself, like, she has this very loving, productive voice about like it's not, it doesn't even feel like, it's funny you call it a critic, like it doesn't strike me as a critic voice, right? It was just like this very loving, like, okay, here's what we need to do. Yep. So I still kind of hear that, but writing in my own voice, it was like, it's kind of terrifying, right? Because like before it's like, you know, I write the speech, I'm very anxious about making sure it's right. And I don't screw anything up or hurt me you or know, whatever. But when they, they hit the podium, it's theirs, right? They own that, that is theirs. Suddenly it's like, this was mine. And to make a book about Judaism interesting, it has to be personal. You know, I'm not, I wasn't writing an academic or scholarly or authoritative book. I was writing about what I found to be the most 
awesome insights of Judaism and like trying to write my God chapter without talking about what I thought about God. I tried to do that and it just didn't make sense. It was like very boring. I'm like, wow, I'm going to have uh, Did the 40 or 50 people you shared it with tell you that? (laughs) (laughs) I totally did replicate my process from the White House of like sending speeches out to 50 people. I would like send it to like 50. It was, it was crazy. And they did, they did. They were like, this is, this is boring. I don't, I, I like, where are you in this? I'm like, wow, I guess I'm going to have to share the story of like the first time I felt like I was in contact with the divine. Like, whoa, that's not something I ever wanted to share, but like, here we are. And you know what? It's actually been great. Like that's actually the chapter that people most respond to because it's very vulnerable. It's personal. And they're like, I'm really moved by that. Like that's something I, I yearn for, or that's something like I've experienced. And I just like, thank you for being so honest. It's actually really moving and satisfying. Yeah. You know, full disclosure, Sarah and I were put together on a uh, a phone date by a mutual friend um, a few weeks ago because I yes. sold a book <laughs> and you were giving me advice on it. And, um, and that is one of the, as I'm in the process of book writing, that is one of the biggest issues. Um, my amazing editor, Libby, asked me early on, what is the character of you on the page? Oh, wow. And I thought, what an amazing way to think about that. I mean, that's that's what we're, we're, we're talking about, right? Like, because... Yes. Because we all... I mean, it's a version of what I was saying earlier, how we don't put our own stories into our speeches. We have this this reflexive thing that's like, no one wants to hear about that. We, and the biggest mistake women make is they speak in the disembodied authority voice. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like a voice that like, and it's the good morning. It is such a great pleasure and honor to be here today to address you on this important. It's like, it's, um, it's so cringeworthy, right? Where it's like, do you greet your colleagues on Zoom by being like, good morning. It is a great, ple-. no, you don't. You're like, hey guys, great to be here. You can say that. Hi, everyone. It's so great to be here today. I love what you all are doing. I'm so passionate about this. Like, that's how I talk. And that's how I'm going to talk in a speech and on the page. I'm going to talk about this then because because you, it's come back to this. And you've said, you've said somewhere that the key to good delivery is the speaker being comfortable. Yes. And that's what we're talking about here. And it's, it's, and it's what's come up a number of times in terms of like, well, what is our natural style? I mean, what, what is the thing that's true to us? And I want to honor that what gets in the way, I mean, I, a billion, a billion things get in the way, but but the, but a main thing that I think gets in the way is that we feel that we should be doing some generic version of the thing. Exactly. We should be doing what someone else had done, or we should do what the person who knows what they're doing would do. And so we end up playing at something for someone. Yes. Yes. And especially in more formal contexts, it's it, it's hard to believe that we can actually be ourselves. I know. And you know, there is some feeling, I think people have a feeling that the generic version is safe because they get up, they give the generic thing. It's not very good, but it's not horrific. There's like not much of a risk there. It's just kind of meh and it just doesn't get you very far. You know, it just doesn't. And I think there are really ways to do the real and the authentic in ways that are still professional. I'm not saying you should get up and blather out your deepest secrets or be too informal or inappropriate. Like, that's not that's not what I'm suggesting at all. But I do think that there is a kind of just sober and passionate sincerity that can be very, very effective. 
you know, I think that, that that can really break through in a way that just like kind of moves people and gives you a lot of, of, of credibility with them. Yeah, I, I think it's, when it gets hard is when you don't look or sound like power historically looked exactly. or sounded, which is an ongoing theme in this podcast. But you know that if you're, exactly. say, a younger woman who, you know, does a lot of likes and what linguists call hedges, softening your statements with sort of or I mean, and that's just part of your vernacular, you know, there is a there's a strong argument to be made to take all of that out of your speech, to practice doing something less natural so that you can come across as more authoritative right. to the people in the audience who might take you more seriously that way. And that might be part of your goal. And then there's a strong argument to be made to like teach those audience members, that there's a new, younger generation coming in and they sound different. Exactly. And look, at this point, it might not be either or. You know, it's like maybe you do things a little halfway. Maybe you cut out some of them, but not all of them. You know, you do like that second question after what's true is, okay, what can this audience hear? How can I reach them most effectively? And look, you've got to be effective, right? So like, you got you to be thoughtful about your audience, right? Like, who is this? What, what can they hear? What can they tolerate? You know, I certainly, while I say the same things, the same content to just about every audience, I say it differently, depending on how old or young the audience is. Is this audience an audience that has a certain background in Judaism or not? What are their politics? Like, I'm going to take that into account when I share my thoughts. Yeah, I think it's really, you know, you know, there's a danger of getting too black and white about it and saying, like, I'm either myself or I am not. Yes. And, you know, the reality is that we all have these gradations in us and all of us are only communicating in order to, you know, fill in the blank thing to the people that we're talking to. Exactly. And I think women often forget that, like, they didn't just, they didn't like crash that stage. They were invited, like they were invited on that stage for a reason, <laughs> you know? It's like they, this like imposter syndrome makes us think like, I have broken into this auditorium and crashed the stage and I can't believe I'm here. It's like, no, 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 no. You were invited because you have a valuable perspective, expertise, your background, something people want to hear from you. You, they want to hear from you. They didn't send an invitation to generic person who holds this job or this degree, they sent it to you. So like, you've been given some permission, you know, permission to speak. You've been given some permission to actually give what, <laughs> give what they've actually asked you for, which is you. What do you think is, um, in this conversation about how we, how much we bring ourselves and how much sort of the world can handle of a version of power that isn't what power, what power historically sounded like, um, what do you think about the glass ceiling is what I'm really asking. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Like, say more. Like, what do you like, mean specifically? what is happening? How do we, how do we change the story? I mean, part I of know. it is uh, there's a massive cultural thing that isn't, you know, your obligation to solve. But in terms of the ways that we can all take control of how we communicate, how, how we listen yeah. to other women. I mean, I think you wrote the... Hillary Clinton's 08 speech where she first talked about the cracks in the glass ceiling. Yes. And and then obviously, you know, I mean, it's been a really tough time. Right. It's been, I still have a, the t-shirt that, um, that says there are women running for president. And I just wore it up until it wasn't true. And I still <laughs> oh wear it, but, gosh. you know, has a really different feeling, you know? You know, and I think the answer is like the more women's voices we hear the more it becomes the norm. And I think, you know, 
back in 2008, when I worked for, for Hillary back then, the conversation was, can a woman be president? Can a woman be president? I don't know. Can a woman be president? In 2016, when Elizabeth Warren was running, it wasn't like, can a woman be president? It was like, can this woman be president? And yes, will there be sexism? But it wasn't this sense that like, can we break this barrier? Is it possible? I think Hillary actually made that a possibility for us. Even though she won by 3 million votes, even though she didn't get to serve as president because of our outdated electoral college system, which is a broken part of our democracy, she did win that election. She did win the popular vote. I think she she showed it. Like, I think that's no longer a question of can a woman run for president? Can a woman be president? The question is, like, which woman is going to be president now? That's what I really think. I think the question is which one. I'm more cynical because, you know, of what happened with Elizabeth Warren. And I mean, it feels like it's an insidious version now. It's not, yeah, it's not the out loud question. It's like the quiet question. Yeah. Like, you know, we think we're judging them on, you know, equal footing, but really we're not. And that's harder because now we have to, like, show the entire American public its internal bias, you know, hold the mirror up. And that's a, it's a mess and a half. I, you know, I do agree with you. I, I think it has become more insidious and more internal. I think that's really true. I would not be shocked if the first female president was a was a, um, a Republican. The first woman was a Republican because I, I, I think in a way, somehow that's like, might feel safer to people. It's less radical. It's more conservative. I mean, who knows? Who knows? But God, this needs to happen soon. I mean, seriously? Seriously? It's like, I just, it's like, are you kidding me? I I just, I I like, all right, it is what it is. But, you know, seriously. I mean, are you um, not for necessarily the highest office in the land, but have you ever considered running? You know, when I was a kid, I, I was interested in running for office. And then once I started working for people, who had to run for office, I was like, oh, hells no. Oh, no way. Right? Like, the money you have to raise, the lack of privacy, it is such a hard life. I, I admire anyone who does this so deeply. It's I, it's just not for me. I, could, I couldn't do it. I just, I, not like I couldn't do it. I don't want to do it. Right. Right. By the way, good distinction. Yes. Yes. Um, I could do it. It would just be very unpleasant. Okay. To tie it into some of my favorite aspects of Judaism because um, I'm Jewish. And I mean, it's not something that I've actually ever talked about on air because it's um, not something that, like, it actually feels like is an essential part of my identity. And yet, reading your book, I'm reminded of my favorite things about it. And so um, one of my favorite things about Judaism is the fact that we're into questions over answers. Yes. Yes. So into questions. Oh my gosh. So into disagreement, dissent, debate. Like we are not into dogma. That is not our jam. <laughs> really like- You have this amazing line uh, where you said, um, if you can make a good argument, you've got a place at the table. Yes, exactly. That cuts through hierarchies in a really bold way. I mean, talk about countercultural. It really does. And when you look at, you know, it's funny. It's funny that you say that because like, Judaism, American Judaism has been very progressive for a religious tradition on women's issues, gay rights issues. Like, you know, today in American Judaism, the American Judaism that 90% of American Jews practice, basically all of non-Orthodox Judaism, has been ordaining women as rabbis for years, if not decades, has been performing gay marriages 
for years, if not decades, depending on the branch. Like we've actually, and I think a lot of that does come from that that valuing the dissenting voice, from that lack of hierarchy and authority and that constant questioning and challenging of like, wait a second, why is this this way? No, I, I, I'm going to make an argument. That's not right. I think I really appreciate that about Judaism. Um, there's an Orthodox rabbi that you quote in your book, Rabbi uh, Emmanuel Rackman, who said, a Jew dare not live with absolute certainty, not only because certainty is the hallmark of the fanatic and Judaism abhors fanaticism, but also because doubt is good for the human soul. Jewish. I mean, by the way, we're living in such insane uncertainty now. It's it's an interesting challenge to try to reframe it as, um, you know, an opportunity to live in uncertainty. I know. But I wonder, um, but I I do wonder how you're thinking about this because, I mean, you said earlier, you know, that part of your book was figuring out how to be a good person. Oh, yes. Uh, Obviously, that is a lifelong journey. I'm not saying you need to, you know, share the wisdom from on high, but I do wonder what you're thinking about when it comes to uncertainty in this crazy moment. I mean, there's the election, there's the pandemic, there's a lot. And I I wonder about the celebrating uncertainty, the celebrating doubt part of it that you could sort of share with us how you're living with this right now. Um, and I also actually want to throw in the, the idea of tikkun olam, which you know, for any of the non-Jews or non-activists listening in means repair the world and is sort of an essential part. I mean, it's another one of my favorite parts of um, Judaism. It's it's an essential part of how Jews think about, um, you know, our obligation to the world. Yeah. Oh my gosh, so much in those questions. You know, I think, no, I love it. But I mean, I think with the uncertainty, you know, I think there is a spiritual value in not knowing right? And just saying like, wow, I actually don't have control of this situation. Like there's a certain level of, I think, just like surrendering to what you can't control. Just being like, wow, this is actually not fully in my control. Here are the things I can control and that I darn well control. But like, there's a lot that I can't. And you can like fight that and be like, it shouldn't be that way. It's bad. That's scary. That's unfair. You know, you can do that, which adds a lot of suffering. Or you can just say like, okay, this is not in control okay, here's why it's not in control. Oh, it's because of bad leadership. Well, I know I am now going to act and do something constructive as opposed to just spinning and being angry and upset and helpless. You can say, oh, I I see why this isn't in control. Here's how I'm going to act wisely to do something about that. I'm going to go be an activist. I'm going to register people to vote. You know, like that's, it's that kind of move to kind of that seeing things clearly, understanding what you can control and what you can't. That's hugely relevant. I also think, you know, I think a lot about, you know, I love the I love the Jewish approach to God, which is one of great humility. You know, like there is no dogma or definition or creed of God in Judaism. We don't define God narrowly because that's sort of idolatry, right? It's like shrinking God to some tiny little human statue. And we don't. We, we think that we're called to live in a certain way in the face of whatever the divine is, and that's Jewish law. But you have all these different definitions and ideas of the divine, which I find like very moving, many of them. You know, I, I, I think of the idea that everything is God. Like, you're God, I'm God. That man who I pass in the street who says, like, can I, can I help you today? You know, can you help me today? That man is the manifestation of the divine. And I think when you think about things that way, it's, um, I find that helpful. I also find a, a Jewish thinker named Martin Buber to be really helpful. He says that God is what arises between two people who are in a moment of just deep human relationship, being fully vulnerable to each other. What arises between them is divine. 
And I, you know, I think in this moment, that idea of, of really being present for people, not physically, of course, but through Zoom, through a call, however you can, and just being like fully vulnerable with them, being de- like showing them a real ministry of presence. I think that's something that kind of helps me cope in this moment of uncertainty. You know, it, it helps me feel less alone. It helps me feel like there's something I can do. I can support others. And that does help me feel more connected to whatever it is that is the divine. Uh, yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I actually had that Martin Buber quote oh. here because I feel like there is there's a connection there between mm. what you just said and public speaking. That in this, in in the dream scenario, we really rather than this feeling of, oh God, I'm up on the podium, people are looking at me and how do I look? And you know, all this stuff that happens that is part of the marketing, you know, as you said earlier. And instead, um, instead there, there's a different mindset that is really honoring the sacred space between you and the audience. I mean, it's just, it's a really different way of thinking about, you know, those, those opportunities that we have. Especially now when people are, I think everyone has been, everyone has been uncentered. Everyone has been destabilized by this, right? I don't know anyone who is just like crushing this and like doing great, right? That's not, I don't know. If they are, that's wonderful. I I celebrate them, but I don't know them, right? Like (laughs) that's just not, that's not what everyone is feeling a little vulnerable, a little broken. And I do think this is a time when that kind of very, just Martin Buber, like I and thou, right? That, that like deep relation between two people that involves some amount of vulnerability. I think it's, it's powerful now. And I think people are more primed to receive that right now. And my dream really for whenever this ends and we're uh, able to sort of commune yeah. together in any sort of context <laughs> is, is that we bring some of that with us. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Scale it up, which is hard, but, but doable. Yes. Okay, so I last question before break. I can't not ask you this. You just did a silent retreat. I did. I just did a, a week-long silent Jewish meditation retreat. This is my, my, my 14th one, I think. And I did this one online via Zoom, oh, just right. to be clear. Yes. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah totally. you can't. No, you cannot go. Definitely not. No travel, no retreat center. I did this one in my apartment just via a screen. So I saw all the other participants in their little Zoom square meditating with me. Yeah, for real. It was, I know, the look on your face is so precious right now. I mean, I'm also thinking it through because, I mean, there's some connection here between speech and not speech. Right? Oh my, so much. Okay, this is like, this is so my jam. You know, when you're constantly speaking and talking and interacting with people, you know, you're kind of pulled externally. You're not really listening to yourself internally and you're constantly distracted by screens and responding and calls and you're always talking, articulating. There is something so powerful about just stopping all of that and just being quiet, just listening to yourself internally, just listening to what's around you, just not having all of those distractions. When you do that, when you stop having to like express and categorize and storytell and articulate, you just, your brain really slows down and you actually get a little bit of perspective because I think so often in our life, some emotion comes up and we react and it's all very fast. But when you're on a meditation retreat, you can start to see like, wow, you know, sometimes in my life, like someone will say something to me and that will raise this thing, which triggers that thing, which makes me 
go back to this thing in my chat. You can actually like see the process of how your mind works and you get a lot of insights into your life this way. It's a very powerful experience. I'm a big fan. Obviously, I've done 14 of them. So yes, I'm a big fan. <laughs> spent three and a half months of my <laughs> Exactly. I've spent three and a half months of my life just silent. It's so useful. I mean, for all of us who are trying to find ways to carve out a little bit of silence or, you know, a little bit of meditation or something that feels generative during this yeah. time. And, you know, especially if we're living with multiple people. And, you know, for me, having a kid, yes. it's, he's around all the time. Um, you know, it's not terrible. Uh, it's a lot of quality time, but it means, it means negotiating, you know, which is like our primary communication style <laughs> that we have together. It's a very loving thing, but it's like, okay, well then what about this? Well, how about if you do this, then I'll do that. But <laughs> You know, I mean, it's it's great. Yes, that I you totally have. To be a young Jew. Um, but you know, then if I sit down to write, my brain is so fried yes. from all that yes. negotiating on top of you know all the news and all the processing. Uh, and so, I mean, I get what you're saying is a really powerful reminder that we don't have to do some magical no. reset that oh we, my we just have to figure out a way to create some space away from people and not talk. Exactly. I mean, this is the thing. And you don't have to do this for a week. You can do, you know, there's all like 10% happier headspace. There are a gajillion meditation apps, programs. You can do this in your apartment. There's a study that shows that meditating just nine minutes a day can actually change your brain. It actually has an impact on your brain. So like, it's free. You can do it anywhere. So worth trying. No, but I'm also thinking about like the the challenge of doing something for yeah. a half a day or something that oh isn't, you know, gosh. for a lot of us who dip into meditation yeah. and who actually are, you know, sort of okay at this point with doing nine minutes. Then the question is, well, what if I do something that actually feels a bit more radical or intentional? And there are half day retreats. There are day long retreats. You can do whatever length you want. They're all, and they're all online now, which is kind of amazing because they're, they're very affordable. All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to find out who you brought in for us. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great tasting all natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. 
For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Sarah, who have you brought in for us? I have brought in Malala Yousafzai, the brilliant and amazing young Pakistani activist, advocate, hero, Nobel Prize winner. She is just an extraordinary icon and light to our world. I'm a big fan of hers, and I I think she has an extraordinary and very holy and powerful voice. When you were watching her UN speech, what were you thinking as a speechwriter? I was thinking, this is magnificent, (laughs) is honestly what I was thinking. I just thought, like, this is just, it's so... It's so perfect, right? Like she was speaking very much in her own voice, right? That that was just her. It felt authentic. It felt real. It felt uncompromising in a way, in a good way, right? It just felt like there was a tremendous moral clarity to it. Just I, I, um, and she just delivered it so beautifully with such presence and poise and passion. Um, I was just blown away by it. Okay, uh, this is Malala, and I believe. And not only people, but even death supported me. And death did not want me so early. So it said, you just go, I'll just see you later. (laughs) And I'm very thankful to people. Because it was the prayers of people and the support of people that did not let me to lose hope. And that is why I started, I restarted this campaign. And I did not say that I'm not going to do it anymore. So, of course, you know, with the 30 seconds I am uh, legally allowed, I couldn't um, show her structure. Right. You know, no, her, no, of course. her speech structure. But I love that moment. I love it. Because you see, you see her humor, right? Her, her grace, right? There's just like, like, my God. And she's talking about very serious, scary. I mean, she's, she's so young and she has this opposition against her. That's very serious and frightening. And that she's able to kind of look at it with this, this grace and humor, you just see her profound humanity there. And I also love that, you know, her English isn't perfect, right? That And because it's, I don't know, second, third, who knows how many languages this brilliant young woman speaks, but she keeps some of the, the imperfections. And I, I actually love that, right? Like, I, I actually think it's, it's very authentic. It doesn't detract from understanding. It's still excellent English, but it's, it's just natural for her. And you just, you detect also her gratitude, Right, she's really expressing gratitude there, which is just so awe-inspiring. It's like, my God, you know, I'm grateful to her, and to see her expressing gratefulness back to me is quite moving. Yeah, it, I mean, it really ties back into what you were talking about earlier uh, with allowing speeches to have a major element of that. Yes, yes, absolutely. Right, she's honoring her audience. That's that's the thing, and and you know, and then she also says thank you to death for not thinking. I know. <laughs> to say that, it's like, wow, <laughs> to have that, wow, that, that, like, it's almost like a, a wow, I mean, how would I even articulate that? It's like, you know, to have this moment of, like, humor around something so stark, it also just, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real, um, there's a real gift of, like, depth and fluency in, in language and in you know, just the ways of the human heart that she has in that moment that's really quite powerful. Yeah, and I was thinking about the word gift too, but in a in a slightly different way because it feels like yes. it was such a gift to the audience that she gave there. I mean, you can hear the laughter and it, it wasn't, you know, ha-ha comedy laughter. It was a release of tension laughter. Yes. That's, I actually, that uh, Hannah Gatsby, 
This is what she does. This is, this is Hannah Gatsby, right? Where it is, you know, it's not comedy laughter. Like that laughter isn't comedy laughter. It's sort of like, it's almost like grief laughter. It's like release of tension laughter, right? And, And she did this so well. She wasn't making light of that. She wasn't diminishing the seriousness of that in any way. You know, she was, it was like, something that invites laughter, but doesn't diminish the subject, which is very hard to do, right? That takes a real gift. And that is Tana Gatsby's genius, what she does there. It's like, and I think Malala just did something similar there. Yes. Well, I, I know. And I want to say it is hard and it should be celebrated. And it is something we can access, listeners, us. But, but it requires that we let go of that, gen- I mean, I call it the generic monster, Exactly. Oh, Carl, the generic monster. I just, there's nothing more unbearable than that generic monster. Because it's just, it's so sad. It robs us. It robs us. Yeah, I mean, it robs us. I, I mean, and what you said earlier is it, it makes us feel safer. But yeah, safer from from anyone seeing us or getting anything from us. Exactly. And when I see women doing that to themselves, I just want them to stop and ask, where am I in this? Right? Where am I in this? It's like the question of like, where is the character of me in this book? Where is the character of me in this speech? Is this a, just, could this speech be given by any human being on this planet? If so, it's probably not a good speech, you know? <laughs> so just like, again, they invited you. They didn't give the invitation to the generic whatever. They invited you and you're kind of robbing them if you don't show up. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Which is the opposite of safe because you're not going to be asked back. Exactly. You're not going to be asked back. It's not safe. I mean, I think that, you know, we should probably end around this note, but it feels like, um, you know, I'm always worried about giving advice on public speaking when I don't know the actual intricacies of each of each of you listeners and of your industry. And, yes. you know, I, I want to say that you know, you should trust your instincts. You know better than I do what is safe and what isn't safe and, you know, what's going to make you lose your job. Uh, But I do think that a lot of us have these outdated notions about what formal and informal means. And we have more freedom than we think we do. And, you know, to watch Malala up there, having survived, you know, an attack on her life, talking about some of the most serious atrocities that humans do to other humans and finding humor in that and just speaking like a person is a reminder that we can all do that. I also think, you know, I'm always anxious about giving advice because I also don't know, I don't know the gender of the person speaking. I don't know the race, the ethnicity, all of the the sexuality, the gender, like all of these things that like, you know, make it a lot harder to be yourself, right? So those things are real. I want to name them. I want to respect them. Like you do, you know, you like people who have these various identities, like they know, they know what's safe and what's not safe and they have a sense. So you should really trust your gut there. I want to like, you know, not just the industry, but like whatever identity that is part of you that you're bringing with you, like got to be aware of that as well. So, you know, this advice needs to be sort of taken in degree, not you know, it's not all or nothing. It's it's taking it in degree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think part of the point of the podcast, I mean, I, I joke that in every episode I say this is the point of the podcast and it's usually a different point, but uh, <laughs> no, but the, you know, <laughs> truly part of the point of the podcast is that, you know, don't do things that are unsafe. Exactly. And put you in danger. 100%. And 
if it's not a danger issue, if it's just a comfort issue, can you push against your assumptions a little bit and just add in a little extra oomph of you and then a little bit more and then a little bit more? Exactly. And every time someone does it, more people can do it. I mean, you sort of see it, I think, especially if you are in someone someone who has a position of privilege, power, security, safety, it's on you more. Because there are a lot of people who don't have that privilege, power, security, safety to do this. So like, if you've got that, use it. And I, I feel like I am someone who does have that. So I really do try to be very, to be vulnerable, to be authentic, to do this because I have that safety that very few other people have. So I want, I'm going to use it. And people often say to me, they're like, I can't believe you just told people that you don't want kids, that you're a 42-year-old woman who's not married and you don't want kids. And that makes it sometimes hard for you to feel comfortable in synagogues. Like that was very personal. And I can't, I'm amazed you said that. I'm like, uh-huh. Because there's someone else out there like me who feels that way. And I'm going to, I'm going to be there for them. I'm going to represent because I can, because I can, I have that privilege. Yes. This is one of the biggest secrets for, um, for anybody who's feeling marginalized, who doesn't feel like they look or sound like what power looks or sounds like, that our story matters. And not just because our story matters, but because there's other people who need to hear it. That Exactly. And that turns us from being just somebody who's speaking for the sake of their own, you know, voice to somebody who's speaking for somebody. And, you know, I, there's a stereotype certainly for women, but I have seen it free people that if we can think of ourselves as helpers, we are doing this for somebody, we give ourselves permission. We're free. I mean, it helps a lot. Yes, it does. Right? It does. No, that's absolutely right. Sarah, thank you. This is so lovely. Oh my gosh, thank you. You are delight. Thank you to Sarah for joining me. You can find out more about her in the show notes or on our website, permissiontospeakpod.com. Uh, every Thursday, I am now doing an IG Live. So uh, head on over to Instagram and you can send me questions in advance. Um, I would be thrilled to interact with you guys, um, either live or, of course, you can watch it thereafter. Also, send me DMs, voice memos at Permission to Speak Pod on Instagram or the website. And let us know what is going on with your voice for our next mailbag episode. We're going to do one coming right up and we want to gather as many juicy questions as possible. Thanks to Sophie Lichterman and the team at iHeartRadio, my family and cohort, and all of you. We are recording this podcast at various locations around Los Angeles on land that is the historic gathering place for the Tongva Indigenous Tribe. And you can visit usdac.us to learn more about honoring Native land. Permission to Speak is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Vision, executive produced by Catherine Burt Canton and Mark Canton. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. 
visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 